I got duped one time, pretty bad, you know, and I'm, I, I find myself pretty cyber aware. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of aware of scams. Uh, and so I, I take pride in my ability to have really long passwords and, and, and really try to create a, an, a digital life that is impenetrable. Um, of course, we know it's not. But I do, I do try to do my due diligence. I have a family member who lived his life in like cybersecurity and tech, and so he, I just try to follow his lead, and sometimes he'll text me things, and he's like, don't do that, you know, don't do that, and so he kind of gives me all his advice on how to live my life, and yet still, I get duped. Uh, one of the more embarrassing ones, and I didn't ever think I'd tell this story, but it fits, uh, was when we, we thought we were buying Lego sets at a really big discount, and we were like, oh my gosh, like this is a big deal. We woke all the kids up. We're like, hey, pick what you want. Like, this is amazing. Uh, and we put in credit card info and everything. I'm looking at like, you know, there's a little lock over in the corner. Like, is this a secured website? Is this all this, like, does everything check out? So I'm doing all that stuff. And we like making sure, you know, but the, the adage, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Like that, that left a long time ago because I was like, surely this is like the Lord's provision. And then you make it through, and you go, this doesn't feel right. <laughs> like, we get the confirmation email, and the charge is not the amount that they said it was going to be. It's less, actually, which makes you feel cool. Uh, but you realize, you, you're probably not getting any Legos. Like, it didn't take long, and you're on the phone with credit card companies navigating, you know, what to do with that. So we got duped. Uh, which was funny because the card we were using was a, another family member's. So we got to tell them they got duped. Uh, and then they got to make the, the important calls about canceling things. And we just had to say, I'm sorry, a lot. And uh, I chuckled because really everything was okay. We did get a hat out of it. They sent us a counterfeit hat. Uh, so it did make it back to the house. Some months later, uh, a counterfeit hat showed up in the mail, which is actually mail fraud. My cousin was telling me, my mom's cousin was telling me, that if they actually mail you something, they've committed mail fraud and they could be prosecuted for it. But what am I going to do? Be like, hey, this thing came from another country and it's a counterfeit hat. Could you please go arrest them? Like, what am I going to do with that? <clears throat> so I left it alone. But what a mess. What a mess when you think something's true and it's not. Like when you, when you get caught up in something and you get really enamored with something or it seems really exciting and, and so you just, you want to believe it. You really want to believe it. And so you convince yourself and like you convince your family around you through group text that it's a good idea too. Um, so it just what a mess. Uh, but for us, very often, exciting, exciting wins. Things that are exciting or they're, they're, they're dynamic or, or they just, they, they seem new New things are cool, new ideas, new concepts, new stories, new books, and so we really latch on to exciting, new, dramatic, engaging things. And that may not be the best thing for us. It may not be the best thing for us, you know, that, 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 that what's new and exciting wins the day. Especially since what, what we as Christians are about is ancient, 
and unchanging. Right? We're about, we're about things that have lasted. They've stood the test of time. They don't, they don't go out of style. You know, so we, we engage in a different realm. And yet, left to ourselves, we will run after exciting. We will run after new. We will run after fancy. And if I'm doing my math right, and I might not, so forgive me, um, this is our 22nd sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. If you count what we did in the fall plus our break, this is, this is sermon number 22. We have two more to go, so 24. So almost half of a year of your life going to the Sermon on the Mount. And what has Jesus been doing the whole time but, but showing us true and false ways? You know, real ways and fake ways. The way of life and the way of death. That's what he's been constantly showing us and how he teaches. There's the way of, of his kingdom. There's the way of his righteousness. There's the way of those who belong to it and how they operate with relationship to anxiety or possessions or how they view mourning or suffering, how they view the poor, how they view being poor in spirit, how they view their life, their bank accounts, the way they're, even their interpersonal relationships. That, 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 that disciples have a way of life. And that's what he keeps focusing on. And as, as we get to the end, uh, we have these three cycles. Rock preached on it last week, which was on these two paths. Right? There's two roads, narrow road and a wide road. And today is two prophets or pe- two kinds of people. And then next week, we have uh, Rich Halloran, who's the headmaster at Providence. He's going to preach next week. And I'm really excited about that because he's really good. Uh, my kids are like, is Mr. Halloran preaching today? I was like, no, I want him to preach. I'm like, well, you get dad. Sorry. Go to your room. Whatever. Like, so he'll, next week on the two foundations or two builders. So these, kind of, these, these three cycles. That actually ends the sermon, but we're going to do one more sermon after that on just the, the, the denouement, right? Like just how it ends. Uh, that, like, that's where we're going to be to kind of go, what happens after Jesus does all this teaching? What happens to us? And what happens to these, these crowds? And what's changed now? And so we're going to go through these cycles of two, two, two. And in every one, there is a meta theme, right? Like there's this same thing, which is like, choose the right one, right? Like, like be engaged with the right one. Go the true way. Don't go the false way. But in each of these illustrations, he's, he's talking about different themes or different approaches, and so it's good for us to see this. So as we look today and we look at this way of living in the world and, and living out our faith, and you can put that in air quotes or not, I want to look at what Jesus says. What does he tell us about what to look out for as we live our lives faithfully for him? So we're in Matthew seven fifteen through 23, the two prophets or the two people. And we're going to read about false prophets and you can kind of look at the corollary of true, or we're going to look at people who think they do significant ministry, and the Lord says, I never knew you. So these are passages that might be familiar to some, uh, but we want to hear it now, Matthew 7, 15 through 23, and just kind of march through it. It's going to be in two paragraphs. It begins like this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree 
bears bad fruit. And a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Rather heavy. Let's pray for our time in the Word this morning. Gracious God, teach us. Instruct us from your scriptures what you want us to hear and by your spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds to these truths that we might be transformed by your grace and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So two ideas, 15 through 20, 21 through 23. These ideas are clearly related, but they all, also the second paragraph throws a bit of a curveball at us, and we'll see that in a moment. Well, let's start with that first paragraph, 15 through, <clears throat> 15 through 20. That false prophets bear false fruit. They bear bad fruit. So verse 15 lays that out, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then from 16, 17, 18 through 20, in those following verses, he's kind of saying this is fruit, there's good fruit and there's bad fruit. Remember what we said, uh, a a sick person can't be healthy, right? Like like you either are sick or you are not sick. Uh, And you can be like, I'm feeling okay, but like if you you have the flu, you have the flu and you're going to have the flu. You have a cold, you have a cold, right? Like, you have a disease, you have a disease. You don't not have that. And you can be healthy given your condition, but the fact is you still have that condition. You can be, you know, so, so there's a difference in diseased fruit, diseased trees, and healthy trees. And he lays out this idea of false prophets, Ooh, right? Like, false prophets, like, like that's, that's, those are heavy words, the false prophets, that phrase may not be the most common phrase you hear in Scripture, but essentially it's people who teach things that aren't true. And I'm going to go a step further, not just that they aren't true, because you could, I could say something wrong, right? I, I, could, I could say something mistakenly and be corrected. But they teach things that, that not only are not being true, but that in believing them, salvation is beyond you. Like you can't, you can't grasp it because they're actually teaching you a different way to get to God. They're teaching you a different way to know him. They're teaching you a different way to understand him. And so, so that doesn't mean that, that doctrinal differences is the definition of being a false prophet, right? That there are denominations and there are, uh, there are doctrinal differences. I'm sure even in this room there are doctrinal differences on some matters. So that just, that's not false prophets. Because a prophet is one who's supposed to show you the Lord, right? They speak Thus saith the Lord, right? In a sense, in the Old Testament, they're speaking on behalf of the Lord. And so to be false means that you're saying you're speaking for the Lord, but you're really not, and you know you're not. You're not just, you're not just saying something less clear. You're saying something that's damnable. Like, that's what you're doing. And so that's why that language of ravenous wolves comes in. Because, man, I, I've been the kid that said something in a small group or, or said something to a pastor, you know, I was trying to work something out, and I say something, and it's like, and it's not right. He's not like, false prophet, heresy council, get out of the church. Like, that's not what he's going to do. It's that person who is going to declare on behalf of God things they know aren't true. 
in hopes of drawing you away, gaining people for themselves, and keeping you from the truth. When we went through Galatians, this was, of course, a big problem in the church in Galatia because people are saying, well, I know Paul says it like that, but, but really you need to add law. You need to add the law back because, I mean, the law is good, right? And, and don't you want to know if you're doing okay? Don't you want to have some kind of marks that say you're doing, you're doing okay? It's good to have those. And so, so come back this way. And remember uh, Paul, who was a man changed by Jesus. He was, a, he was a man of the law, but he was changed by Jesus and saw the grace that was given. And he says in Galatians essentially this. He goes, I don't care if you have other teachers. Of course you're going to have other teachers. You're going to have other leaders. You're going to have other people investing in you. But these people don't want you to have other teachers because they know what they're doing. They know how they're communicating isn't shared among us. And so they're trying to keep you for themselves so you don't hear what's true. But for example, these warnings that will show up. In the Old Testament, pretty dire. Deuteronomy 18.20, listen to how this is spoken. Uh, we're reading Deuteronomy in our reading plan right now, so we're not at 18 yet, but we'll get there soon. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, presumes to speak a word in my name, you see the condition there? That I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Pretty big consequence to speaking on behalf of God and saying, no, this is what God is saying. This is what God is doing. They presume to speak on behalf of God, but they're actually speaking evil. Now, we're going to go way into the future, right? There are, of course, other references to false prophets. We're going to go way into the future. The problem doesn't leave. Jesus gives the warning in Matthew, which we're in right now. But even that same guy we just mentioned, the Apostle Paul, a man changed by Jesus and his grace, even though he was zealous for the law, Jesus changes him on the road to Damascus. And now, later in his ministry journey, he's giving this warning to a group of elders of a local church, right? Jesus has come into the world. Uh, he has death, burial, and resurrection has happened. He's ascended, and now the ministry of the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is going out. And he gathers the leadership of the church at Ephesus, coastal town. He gathers them together. He's not going go to you know, go to them because he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He's going on a journey, and he, they come to him, and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, look at this, to draw away the disciples after them. That's what they're doing. They're drawing disciples after them. They're ravenous. They're going to try and teach you something that's not true. But here's the thing. It's going to sound good. That's the, you have to realize that. It's, it could sound really good. If it's appealing to your flesh. You go, yeah, I want to believe in a God like that. It doesn't really push your buttons. It doesn't mess with you. I want to believe in a God like that. And shepherd illustrations are common in the Old and New Testaments. Right? People who farm, raise livestock. Right? So they understand the shepherding illustrations probably better than we do um, because they're throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah uses it. Ezekiel uses it specifically in regard to 
uh, bad shepherds. Remember uh, one of the most famous psalms in the world, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, we're talking about shepherds and sheep. And so this illustration of God as the shepherd overlo- over, uh, overseeing and caring for his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the true shepherd. He's not the false shepherd. He is our caretaker, and we are his sheep. So his warning is to look out for people who appear like us, but are not of us. To to look for those people. And you go, well, how do I know if I've seen them? I mean, because they're not going to come in, like, with their face painted dark and their dark clothing, and they're like, hey, come over here. Like, Like, that's not how it works. Right, that this stuff gets disguised in books and exciting ideas, and it kind of creeps up, and people go, "Man, I really like the way that sounds. I really like the way I, I like hearing that. That makes sense." Whenever some pastor or leader tells you, "Oh yeah, uh, I understand, and I totally love that church or appreciate that church," but they don't know the secret. And right, people start talking about how they have a secret to life in God and you don't have that secret, and you need to go over to them to get that secret, or that's, oh yeah, well, you know, we've uncovered the lost way of following Jesus, like there was something lost, and now it's found, and this group of people has it. And when we, when we hear that kind of language, look out, right? Just, just at least yellow light, if not red light. Because everything God wants you to know, he has revealed. Everything. You don't need to find somebody else to go, yeah, but if you hold the Bible just like that, and you do that, then, then you really see it. That's what God really wants you to know. That doesn't exist because we have the scriptures. We can look. God's not hiding. He's not hiding. He's not making himself hard to find. He's there. And so when you hear that kind of language, it could tip you off oh yeah, well I know that, but we don't just use the Bible, or, or, or we look at a few things, or well they didn't really understand that, we understand it now. When you hear those things and you've moved away, um, one of my uh, favorite songwriters, Andrew Peterson, has a song he writes to his son, or sons, but one of them, stick to the old roads, that's one of his lines in there, and you'll find your way. Right? And that just that il- illustration of just staying to what is true, Staying to what is true. Stick to the old roads that God has revealed. And you won't be lost. But we get really excited about new. So what does Jesus say? <clears throat> well, Jesus says, you'll know if they're true or false by their fruit. You'll recognize them by their fruit, he says in verse 16. Are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now just stop. If you were with us in James, isn't it sound something like James said? He uses that in talking about the tongue, right? Well, can, can, can this kind of strain produce salty water and, and sweet water or bitter water and sweet water? You know, like, like he's using this language that he's taking from his brother. Jesus says, do figs grow from thistles? Of course not. So every healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, you'll recognize them by their fruit. So this is helpful. Now we know. Those who are of God bear good fruit, and those who are not bear bad fruit. You can't be healthy and sick at the same time. Now, when you think about a tree, 
The, di- the, di- the disease, hard for me to say there, the disease doesn't start just in the tree. It usually starts in the soil. It starts in where it's rooted. Bad root, bad fruit. Now, of course, there are times that <clears throat> a healthy tree can get a disease. So any of you who are like, <clears throat> well, you know, and my, my arborist friend would say that a healthy tree can get a disease and like, just roll with it, right? Like, Jesus is not trying to track down every arborist and go, Are, do you agree with my illustration? But if the roots are right, and we're rooted in the Lord, then the fruit that is born comes from him. <clears throat> if we're rooted in the wrong things, and we're rooted in this world, then, of course, the fruit that is born comes of this world. The results of the ministry of a false prophet is bad fruit. The result of one who is ministering the power of God is good fruit. But I don't want to give an exhaustive list because then we spend a lot of time going, is this good fruit or is this bad fruit? Like, is it, you know, like, and all those pastors who go, I'm a fruit inspector. I'm like, are you a good one? Um, And so we can spend a lot of time tracking down, well, is this good fruit or is this bad fruit? I want to just give you a couple of things as uh, Nick did with his kids in the video. But what are some evidences of good fruit? What are some evidences of good fruit, faithful ministry amongst the flock in the life of the church? What would be good fruit? I think one example is that you see relational unity. Right? Because the Lord, the Lord will divide between us and the world, but amongst brothers and sisters produces unity. We see people come together from different backgrounds who have been saved from different sins, but they still have the same problem of sin. We see these people surrender to Jesus and giving him honor. They're unified. They're together. They stand together. They love each other. And Jesus says that, right? That the world's going to know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So if teaching produces disdain, frustration, anger, then are we teaching the right things? There are many things that I would say preachers could be tempted to talk about because they know it could draw crowds. Positively or negatively. I mean, the past four years taught us that if you say certain things or not certain things, then people will or won't listen because of that. If you take certain stances that you don't have to take, or you, like, like if, we, if we do those kind of things and we make statements and we stir up the pot, the people show up. They show up, but they show up angry. They show up frustrated. They're, they're ready to have their, in a sense, kind of just their flesh tickled. And if you come to Genesis, if you're new here, just to let you know, like, we're going to be pretty boring. Like, because it's the Lord who is the one who saves. It's, it's he who's the one who's beautiful. Like, you go, well, I can hear that in any church. I'm like, I hope. I hope you can. I don't eat in the mornings usually, so it's just Hans and coffee is what you get in the sermon. So that's coffee, it's not water. So is there unity or is there discord? That's going to be an evidence potentially of false prophets. It could also just be the evidence of a church living in the flesh, right? But that could be what false prophets do. That's what happened in Galatians. 
The congregation is now mad, and they're biting and devouring one another. That's the language that, that Paul uses. But why do you bite and devour one another? Like, like they're, they're consuming one another because they're dividing up over things that aren't true. Here's another thing that might be bad fruit. Does sin follow it? Does it produce sin? <laughs> Does it produce sin? If it produces sin, like that's not of the Lord. It's not of the Lord. Preaching the scriptures produces surrender. <laughs> Listening to the scriptures makes you go, I'm not that. It doesn't, doesn't lead to sin. Unless in your flesh you just go, I reject it outright. Right? Like you just go, I don't want to hear it. But that's not the scriptures that do that. That's you. Here's one that can catch us off guard. And this is one that um, Jonathan Edwards in his book, The Religious Affections, where he was trying to help people understand what true and false um, conversion might have looked like. He was warning against many of the things that we probably would consider fruit. Uh, because, because we can be kind of shallow. So here's one. Is there enthusiasm? Enthusiasm's exciting. But enthusiasm alone does not make a church. But it's exciting. I'm not saying that if a church is enthusiastic that it is <laughs> full of false prophets. I'm just saying that you might latch on to something that is generally enthusiastic because it sounds good and the people are really energetic about an idea. But a false idea can energize just as much as a good idea, a true idea. And so we do have to be on guard for those things. In fact, that's even if you can read kind of clunky Puritan language, because it is hard to read Puritans. Like I know we're like, some pastor is going to give you like the one sentence that makes sense, but there's about 700 other sentences where you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, so I didn't pull like the one sentence from Edwards that you could have used, but the religious affections is all about trying to define what true affections are. And his point was, there are many things that the world can reproduce that might make you think that the conversion is true, but actually is not. That's his main point. And many of the markers that we look at, enthusiasm, excitement, loud singing, pray, like all of those things don't necessitate that growth is going on or that good fruit is being born. It doesn't. And that's scary to realize that just because there's people around and they're chatting, that that's not necessarily of the Lord. I say necessarily because it certainly could be, but it's not just a mark. Another one, though, <clears throat> about good fruit is does it endure? Does it endure? Does it last? Now, endurance is a funny thing, and that's what the next paragraph is going to teach us. Uh, because what we see in verses 21 through 23 is this idea that it seems like the fruit endured. This is why the first paragraph is different than the second and actually challenges us a little bit because in the first paragraph he's going, hey, watch out for bad fruit. And so, of course, we all got our fruit inspector. In there. Is this good fruit? Right? Is this bad fruit? Like, we're ready to go. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gives us an illustration of people before him. At the end of their days, people are before him, and what do they point to? Fruit. Look at this. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, right, the day of reckoning, Old Testament was full of this language of the day of the Lord, the day where the Lord comes and he brings his judgment. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, now look at this. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, you see the problem between the first paragraph and the second paragraph? Watch their fruit. And then you read the second paragraph, and there's people who make it all the way to the end, and they kind of point to their fruit, and they're like, look at that. Look at what we did. And he still says, get out of here. This is why we shouldn't just always just blanketly trust one another to be the final evaluators of one another. Because we can get it wrong. <laughs> like, we can still get it wrong. I'm not saying that you should never be discerning, nor am I saying that you shouldn't evaluate teaching and go, is this good teaching? Is this good for our church to hear? Is this good for us? That's certainly the job of church and their leadership to go, what's going on and what's being heard and what's being engaged? But I think it's to say and to help us realize that there will be some things that make it by our fruit-o-meter and it reminds us of this, that it is the Lord who is the final judge. It is the Lord who is the final judge. Now, let's think about what much of what Jesus' teaching has been about. He says this, don't merely think that you're fulfilling the letter of the law and that you're okay because of that. Been a big part of his teaching in the sermon. Don't think that just because you're doing things that God says, hey, do it like this, you go, okay, well, I'll just robotically do it like that, and I'm good, right? He says, no, you need a greater, you need a greater righteousness. You have bigger problems than just your behavior. You got a problem going on in your heart. And so just trying to clean up behavior is not going to get you where you need to go. Though you'll look better, still doesn't get you there. Do not merely think that you are doing religious activity and you're good, right? A prayer, giving, fasting, those examples that Jesus gave us in chapter 6. Don't merely think that because you're doing religious behavior that somehow you are now approved by God, but rather do it in a way that your heavenly Father will see. Another example. Do not live in fear of what you will have. Don't live in fear of your life, what you will wear, what you will eat. Your Heavenly Father knows that you have these needs. He will provide. Well, with, with that in mind, where has Jesus been? What has he been teaching us? He has said this to us. We should never be confident about external marks as if they are the sure way to know if someone is faithful to God. That is not to say that you cannot evaluate or, or see, pray and go, God, what's going on here? In fact, if, in fact, church discipline is a process that can help with that, where we just go, it doesn't seem like you're walking in step with the Lord and that you don't really want to. But we want to see you do that. We want to see you do that. Right? So even the church discipline process recognizes that, that God's playing the long game, <laughs> often a lot longer than us, and that he's working something out through time and people. And he's even given us relationships with one another to help with this. But that ultimately... He is the one who weighs and measures. He is the one who weighs and measures. 
And so that's what we get to see here. That first paragraph is watch out for false prophets, which we should watch out for, right? Bad teaching, bad instruction, divisiveness, results in sin. People are running away uh, for their own good. They found this new book and it has all the answers, right? When you're finding those kinds of things, well, you have to watch out for what might be going on. But then even knowing, even knowing that, the Lord is the final judge. And these people who stand before him, these people, there's, given, there's no comment given by Jesus as to whether or not they're surprised that he says what he says. In fact, if I were able to, to give it a little language, like I think they are the religious, right? They, they, are, the, uh, they are the, we're going to do Exodus after Easter. Uh, they're Pharaoh's magicians. They'd throw the staff down and turn it into a snake and go, well, we can do that too. And so they think that through their religious behavior and people manipulation that that's going to be good enough. So go look at that stuff that we did, really for us, but, but look, look at what we did. And so they're the ones that think that you can get to heaven by just being good enough and doing enough good things. If you do enough good things, you're all right. I was at church every time the doors opened. I was always there. I sat in the front row. I took notes with my pen. I was ready to go. I was super engaged. If there was something to sign up for, I signed up for it, Lord. Doesn't that count? Doesn't that count? I went on 15 mission trips. Dug wells, I built houses, I evangelized. Shared the gospel with 30 people. Well, if you read the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians, you know that people can share the gospel and really not believe it. Right? And Paul's like, it's great they're hearing it. This is one thing that I love, just as a footnote on this whole sermon, is that the Lord will still use it to change people. Because it's not about the person. Right? That like, you can come to Christ, you can hear about Jesus by somebody who doesn't know him. Right? Like, just think about all the guards in the Philippian jail that were mocking Paul. Be like, oh yeah, here comes Paul. He's, you know, don't, don't go too close to Paul. He might convert you, you know. Jesus died for your sins. Oh, look at Paul. But he's in prison. And then, like, prisoners are coming to faith <laughs> through people mocking Paul. And so, the Lord can work even in Fruitless hearts. He can work in your heart. And what a comfort that is. I get comforted every Sunday that God uses bad sermons. Every Sunday. Or when somebody comes up to me and they say, man, when you made that point, it was awesome. And I'm like, I didn't make that point. It's totally happened. I didn't make that point, but I am so glad you heard it. Tell the elders. So there's just this idea that, right, final, finally it belongs to the Lord. I have been that person who's mistakenly tried to determine whether or not somebody is or isn't a believer by just, just saying, well, it doesn't look like you're a Christian. I've been that guy. I've caused wounds because of that. Not because they did not declare something, but because I was just like, I don't think a Christian would do that, and thus I don't think you're a Christian. I've been that guy. I probably have relationships in my life that have changed because I've been that arrogant guy. So it's, I love that Jesus gives us this illustration because it shows us, one, that he's the one, 
It's going to finally declare. And we need to remember that. And then, then there's this second idea, which is reinforced in Galatians. I'm about to re- read it. But where God knowing us is more important than us saying we know God. That's a big difference for us, right? Because if you say, hey, I was at church every time it opened. I went on all the mission trips. I did all the things. I took all the notes. I was at the Bible drill. I crushed it. I know that stuff. You can be that person and say, and that's all about you claiming knowledge of God. But salvation is God claiming knowledge of you. Right? That's the difference. It's God going, she's mine. He's mine. That family's mine. That's the difference. And it comes to the work of Jesus. Remember this verse, Galatians 4, 9. But now that you have come to know God, and look at how Paul corrects himself mid-sentence. Or rather, be known by God. That that's more important. Because many people will claim to know God, many people will use him and even ride the coattails of the Lord to get something that they want, but it doesn't mean they're walking with him. How many people have claimed Jesus to try and gain something in this world? To gain status, to get votes, to get people to like him, to get him to look at him, whatever it might be. How many have used Jesus to try and gain something in this world? I know God. I know God. It's a harder question to go, but does God know you? And he doesn't say that so, you be, so you're wandering around in fear, because God is knowable. He is knowable. Scriptures reveal who he is, and they reveal how we know him and how he knows us. That relationship is mediated by Jesus, the Son of God. That there is not another way to be known by God but to surrender and put your faith in the work of Jesus for your sins. That your sins separate you, and knowledge of God comes through that repentance, your life, turning to Jesus, your Savior, <clears throat> and God declaring, You're mine. You're mine. So Jesus, doesn't, Jesus does not teach this to freak you out. He doesn't expect his disciples to be wandering around going, man, I really don't know. Am I in or am I out? Am I in or am I out? Am I in or am I out? Like, that's not what his goal is. Because, I mean, just look at his ministry. What does he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He doesn't hide who he is. He doesn't hide how this works. That he is our knowledge of God. Right, because he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And through him, we become known to God. We're always God's creation, but knowledge in that saving sense. Where we are eternally bonded to him. Jesus does not claim knowledge of us simply because someone claims knowledge of him. And that's what these people were doing. What has the sermon said? It's not just about doing the right thing, it's about being the right person. And that doesn't happen on your own. And so when people stand before him and go, look at all the things we did, we've missed the point of everything he's taught. We've missed the point of everything he's taught. If we get to the end of the sermon and we think, okay, I've got to do more. 
I've got to do more things. If I do more things, then God will know me. And it's funny, as a pastor, to go, of course I want you to do more things. But it doesn't, you don't start there. Like, that's, not, that's not move one. Move one is lose your life. Lose your life. And the rest comes later. You can be known by God. Some of us might not have ever had that statement ring true. That God says, she's mine. He's mine. They're mine. And you can do that through surrendering to the death, burial, resurrection, putting faith in the Son of God, died for your sins, and rose from the grave. If you have never trusted him for your forgiveness, you can have that. And you can truly live. I was talking with a few friends about, really, these three sermons all have the same destination. Right? Narrow way. True prophet. Works from the heart, not from the behavior. Right? Changed heart, changed life. Being known by God, not, being, not just claiming knowledge of God. All of these kind of lead to the same point, which is pick new routes. So you're not going to get really fancy changes in how we talk about this passage from week to week over these three on the one hand, there is this truth from the first paragraph, which is, hey, be discerning about false prophets. Jesus doesn't want you to be unaware. I think that's important. That you don't just dive into something because it's new or neat or interesting, and you can get sucked in and get devoured. Now, by God's grace, you can also be pulled out of that through the work of Jesus, right? Like, like, like he, just bring, he just graciously can bring you back. That's what Paul was doing, I think, for the Galatians. Hey, remember what's happened <laughs> Go back over there, right? Like, go back over there. That's what's true. This is going to take you the wrong way. Go to Jesus. So there is this idea of being discerning. But still, that feels incomplete when we realize that maybe you or I could be duped. But the Lord can't. I've been duped. I've stood with people who have, I mean, I've been duped for all kinds of reasons. People have told me, I'm like, ah, you know, I don't think you have a problem with alcohol or drugs. Like, you seem clean, sober. And then, you know, my family member beside me is like, nope, that's not true. I'm like, they're an addict. I can see it. It's written all over their face. I'm like, no, nah, I don't think it is. No, it is. Claiming all these things to be true about them that aren't true. Like, oh, okay. So there's that idea that, like, you can be duped. Oh, I thought God changed you. He's like, nope, you're just kind of living in your addiction. You just now learned how to hide it. I've been in the room, in intervention, when that has happened, where I think someone's fine, and they are not fine. They are not fine. But they're claiming to be. And I can be duped by teaching. It sounds good, but maybe it's just a little off step, and I'm just not discerning enough. And so here's what I would say to us today. Is this, choose the way of faith. Because I think that idea of the way of faith, well, it goes to last week's sermon, which way are you going? It goes to next week's sermon, which is build on the rock, not the sand. But the way of faith does a few things. Think about it. One, it doesn't emphasize externals over heart. Because faith in Jesus says, you've got to be changed here. 
it can't just be changed here. You've got to be changed here. So the way of faith is one that recognizes that faithfulness trumps externals. It doesn't get enamored with ecstatic or exciting. It gets enamored with Jesus. It embraces the way of Jesus and the way of suffering and the way of service. The way of faith recognizes our own weaknesses and doesn't assume that we'll always be the most discerning. So we need each other. The way of faith actually, actually binds us together in the Lord because we're his family. And there might be times, right, when I'm like sitting in that room with somebody going, I think they're fine. And then somebody else who knows way better goes, they're not fine. They're not fine. And I go, oh, I still think they're fine. But I trust you. So when we're saved by Jesus together and we're in church family together, we are better able together to go, what's going on here? What are you seeing? That in fact, if a way of living or a way of believing removes you from your church family, that's one of the most dangerous things that you can find. That if you, can, if you become convinced that your church doesn't have it together and you need to kind of go off solo to get it, that's the wrong road, friend. We are silly people and we will make mistakes, but I promise you, being with the faith family together is going to be way better than trying to just go get your knapsack and head out on your own and see how you do, because you won't do well. You won't do well. And then finally, the way of faith trusts God with the final outcomes. It trusts Him. I surrender people that go, this is the Lord's. This is His church. We are His people. What He is working out in us over time is His will. And it's not going to get caught up in the cool, clickbaity ideas. Instead, it's just going to be caught up in the goodness of Jesus for us. That's what's going to change us. So let's pray that for our own hearts, that we can listen to the voice of our Savior.